0: Thank you, David. Good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? Great to see you. Happy Father's Day. All right. Am I on? Yes. Okay. Good. Uh, That's probably the cheeriest word you're going to hear this morning. So let's get to work. Sorry, that's a a little bit of a warning. This is going to be a really interesting and challenging message this morning about exile uh and so uh we're even dispensing with all the regular chit chat i'm frank if you don't know i'm glad you're here let's dig into it you can turn to ezekiel 36 we will eventually eventually get there excuse me and unpack that but we're in the fourth week of this uh series that we're doing taking a little bit of a break from our two-year long study of the book of romans Uh, and one of the reasons we're doing this is because we wanted to give you an overview of the test the old testament to help you understand how it kind of fits in with um, what Paul is saying in in the book of Romans, but also uh, so that we, uh, those of us that are a little bit newer to this, have a framework uh, with which to work in when we go into the Old Testament and read some of those seemingly random and disconnected stories that actually all do fit together to proclaim one message, that God is faithful and he is going to save his people. And so we're trying to show that. And so we've done it through these, uh, we're doing it through these five topics, God's faithfulness, he is faithful in promise. That, uh, that was the first week Sean Myers did that. By the way, Myers is not with us this morning. He is, in, he is preaching all four services at Tempe today. So uh, be praying for him. And also, if you're not doing anything at 5 or 7 tonight... You know, head out there and support him. But uh, you can hear him, he's doing something completely different in Tempe. But he talked about how God's faithfulness is expressed in the promise that God gave to his people first and foremost by calling Abram or Abraham. And he went through that in Genesis pretty much. Uh, The second week I came in and talked about how God is also also faithful as he forms his people. And one of the things that we need to remember is that formation of God's people happens through all five of these processes and all five of these steps. But we specifically spent one week talking about formation, primarily out of the book of Exodus and during the time of uh, the Exodus, primarily. Last week, the other Sean, Sean Mortensen, came in and talked to us about how God is even faithful when God's people rebel. And Sean did a great job of laying out. Uh, uh, you know a thousand years worth of of, um, Jewish history in about 42 minutes so that was a wonderful message but also started priming us for what's happening today which is exile Uh, God's people rebelled over the course of several centuries and and so God's uh, God had to judge their sin in his wrath because he has wrath against sin and he does that by allowing them or causing them to go into exile and we're going to look at that today and what that means and then next week we'll wrap this up with, with the return after uh, the exile. So one of the things that uh, Mortensen talked about last week is this idea that Um, Even in the midst of Israel's glory days, and he talked about the glory days primarily centering around the kingship of, of first David and then his son Solomon, but even in those glory days when Israel seemed to be on top of the world and everything seemed to be going well, that was really the beginning of the end. There was rebellion even during the glory days that was setting the stage for the next several hundred years of rebellion that would lead God to judge the sin of his uh, people. Uh, and the problem is, is really this, and we'll talk more about this when we get into the message of Ezekiel, but the problem is this, that we've been saying for four weeks now that as God's people, Israel was given this great gift for which there should have been gratitude, which then should have transcended into generosity to other people, but that's not what happened. Uh, They either hoarded the gift to themselves or they completely ignored the gift. Both of those would be acts of rebellion. They were called by God to be, they they were called by God and were blessed by God and they were blessed to be a blessing, but they never got around to that second part, uh, being a blessing. So what I want to do to set this up first is I want to give you a brief Very brief uh, timeline of the history of Israel so that you understand how that shapes up going into exile. Uh, I remember when I first became a Christian, the first time somebody ever did this for me on a Sunday morning or in a Bible study, giving me that chronological timeline of the Old Testament, that was really helpful for me to be able to go back and be able to frame all of those narratives in the Old Testament on that timeline. That was very helpful. So maybe it'll be helpful to you. For many of you, it'll just be a review of something you already know, but it'll help set up the message today. Uh, When Sean spoke in the first week about Abraham, that happened that first call of Abraham t- uh, happened at about, in about 2,000 B.C., about 4,100 years ago. The second week when I spoke about the Exodus and from the book of Exodus, that was around 1,400 B.C., so 3,500 years ago. Uh, king David ascended to the throne as the nation's second king uh, sometime just a little bit after 1,000 B.C., maybe around 980 or 985 uh, B.C., so you can see there's hundreds of years, seemingly, gaps between these major events, but they're pretty much filled in with the Old Testament. And then after king was, uh, David was king, his son Solomon became king, and he was king for a long, long time, and, and they experienced their greatest economic and some of their best military times under Solomon's reign, but the, the, the cracks were already beginning. The, the rebellious cracks were already beginning uh, at that time, and so... Things started to fall apart after Solomon. His son Rehoboam becomes uh, the king, and Rehoboam was just a disaster. Uh, What followed was the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, which is 12 tribes of people, uh, split into the northern kingdom, which had... Ten of the tribes went with the northern kingdom, and they were called Israel, and their, uh, their capital city was in Samaria. And then the southern kingdom was called Judah because they had two kingdoms, and their, their, their uh, tribes were uh, Judah and Benjamin, and they retained Jerusalem as their capital. So northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah— and then you can see how the Old Testament kind of starts telling the stories of both in, in sort of parallel fashion. But you see them both heading down the road towards, uh, towards judgment, divine judgment, and towards this exile thing. Now, it happened sooner for the northern kingdom than it did for the southern kingdom. Um, uh, the, this split happened in 922 BC. Right about 200 years later, in 722 BC, the nation of Assyria, which was the world's superpower at that time, came in from the north, and they sacked Israel. They sacked the northern kingdom. And their policy with conquered people was to just scatter the people and get them to disperse among all the other peoples of the world and get them to intermarry so that, so that the conquered people would be completely deluded and they would have no sense of identity or community. They felt that was the best way to keep them down. So that's what they did. And then uh, you can see that the story of Judah The southern kingdom continues then. There's no more real parallel anymore. It's just the story of Judah. And they last almost 200 more years um, in in a... a A little bit before 605 bc nebuchadnezzar came into power in babylon and babylon became the new power most powerful uh, force in the world and they they took out assyria and then they just kept marching and they came in and in 605 bc they sacked jerusalem and judah but that wasn't the first time they did that they attacked jerusalem and judah three different times 605 597 and 586 bc the last one was 586 when Zedekiah was still the king of uh, of Judah, but he was a puppet king of Nebuchadnezzar's and all his, his job was really just supposed to send tribute money back to Nebuchadnezzar, but he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and so Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586 and, and, and was so angry that he told the army that when you, when you destroy the temple, don't, don't just destroy it, but dig up the footings of the temple too so, so that they have nothing left to ever build upon ever again. And that was the end of the temple. And, the, and we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but the temple is the centerpiece of, of the Jewish community. Uh, without that, they have no sense of community and no sense of identity. That was gone. But there was one thing different about Nebuchadnezzar in terms of his policy with conquered people as opposed to the Assyrians. Nebuchadnezzar's uh, policy with conquered people was to carry most of them back to Babylon but then keep them in their own community with a sense of identity in Babylon. Now now, some of the people stayed in the conquered Jerusalem and that was devastating and hard and difficult, and, but many more, about 70,000 over the course of 20 years were carried back to Babylon and made their home there. And that may sound like it's pretty good, but you need to remember that they were still a conquered people that were humiliated without their temple, without their, their primary community, and, and they were being mocked and marginalized and culturally challenged in that, in that new place. They, they were without anything that was familiar, none of the accoutrements that they were used to. And, and here's the thing, you need to understand, and by the way, the Jews thought the Babylonians were just barbarians and hated their culture. But here's the thing that we need to remember. We live in a place, America, where, frankly, it's just expected by each one of us that every one of our preferences is going to be met. And if it isn't met, it's at least going to be strongly considered. And if it's only strongly considered, we're going to fight hard until it gets met. When the Jews were in exile in Babylon, you have to understand, they had none of their preferences were ever met, nor did they have any expectation that any of their preferences culturally would ever be met so it was a very very difficult time even though they were still together it was a very very difficult and challenging time psalm 137 is a psalm that was written during this exile and you can hear the cries of the people in this psalm let me just read you the first four verses and explain what it's what it's like there the psalm starts out and says by the waters of babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered zion Babylon was known for its waterways, both natural and man-made. And of course, back then, you didn't have you know, hot and cold running water and indoor plumbing and all that. And so you always had to have a source of water. And, and the Babylonians were really brilliant about being able to figure out not only, of course, where the natural waterways were, but also how to use those to do some man-made ones too. And so they were flourishing. So they had a place to live. You had to be by water. But they said, that's where we sat down and wept. That's where we grieved. When we remembered Zion, Zion's a way of them referencing their homeland. Have you ever been in that um, valley of the shadow of death, in that dark night of the soul? Have you ever been in your own personal exile? When you sit down and you weep and you remember when things were better, when you you remember when things were good, you remember when things weren't the way they are now. That's what they were doing and, and they had to do this for 70 years. There were... Uh, thousands of people who were carried off into exile who never made it back because it was that long. This would be their home for the rest of their lives. And then the next verse, verse two says, on the willows there, we hung our lyres. Here's what they're saying there. The, a, a lyre is, is a harp. It's a, type of, it's a stringed instrument. It's a type of harp. And, and what they're saying is, it's not just that they hung their lyres on the trees. Uh, it's really metaphor. It's poetic metaphor. But what they're saying is, we gave up all of our musical instruments. Uh, anything that we would use to 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 sing praises or sing worship to God or to celebrate, or or to be happy or to to enjoy music. How many of you re- just really enjoy music? It gets into your soul. How many of you really enjoy the music more than you do the sermon on Sunday morning? That that happens, okay, and that's okay. Uh, th- they're saying we're in exile. We, we, we can't do any music. We're hanging up all of our instruments. And it's poetic that they would hang them on the willow trees because willows are known as what? Weeping willows. And so they're, hanging, they're weeping and so they're hanging up their instruments on the weeping willows. And then they say, why? For there, it's there on, these wa- on the banks of these waterways where we're living that our captors, our tormentors, they're requiring us to sing songs. They're coming to us and saying, with mirth, we want you to, to sing one of the songs of Zion. You, you Jews, you're such musical and happy and praise, uh, uh, praiseful people. Why don't, why, don't you, why don't you sing your song? Come on, give us a show. You know those old westerns when the guy would come and, and he would say, dance, and they would shoot at their feet. That's the picture I get you know, of, of these tormentors coming to them and saying, sing. And, and that word mirth means sing with joy and celebration. In other words, When you do this, you better do some facial management techniques and you better act like you're enjoying this. We want you to have fun while you're doing this. And if you don't feel like you're having fun, you got to act like it anyway. They're being mocked and oppressed. That's their lot in life. And then verse 4. But how? How? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we do that? How could we possibly sing the praises and worship of our God when when we feel like he's abandoned us and taken us into exile. So the exile lasted 70 years. And there's a prophet named Ezekiel who is known as the one of the exilic prophets. He was he was there in Babylon with the rest of the exiles and God came to him and called him into this ministry of being a prophet. And so he preaches to the people and so we're going to we're going to study some would argue the most important chapter out of, out of all of Ezekiel's writing, which it's a long, long book. Ezekiel is a major prophet, although he doesn't get the press that Isaiah and Jeremiah do. But we're going to look at that, that chapter, chapter 36, which is one of the most important. Let, let me explain a little bit of the background of Ezekiel for you, though. Um, he is a major Old Testament prophet. A prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God, called by God to speak on behalf of God about the application of of God's truth and wisdom to life. And as such, they spoke with great authority often about the future. And understand, it's not that they were fortune tellers. It's not like that. Uh, They just simply came and said, this is what God said he's gonna do and this is how we apply it to our lives today. And by the way, if you continue to do this, you need to understand that it's going to end badly for you. There were a number of prophets before they went into exile that kept telling the, the Jews, if you continue down this road of rebellion you are going to end up in exile and they didn't listen. They didn't listen to the prophets and the prophets were God's messengers, but we need to understand that they never edited God's message. Rather, they were proclaimers and doers of God's message. They never allowed themselves to tickle people's ears. They never softened the blow. They never sugarcoated God's word. You're going to hear some language in here today that is quite extreme and crass even, but it's because this is what God wants his people to hear because God takes sin very seriously. We make jokes about sin and God says no. There is wrath that comes in judgment of sin. We need to take it seriously. And so that was the job of a prophet. And as a result, they weren't really the most popular guys around. So Ezekiel was carried off into Babylon during the second siege of Jerusalem in 597. And he was only 25 when he got carried off. And the reason I tell you that is because I want you to understand, he knows exile. He knows suffering and oppression and marginalization. He knows what it's like to be mocked. And not only that, it, it gets worse. When the armies came in, the armies of Babylon came in, they killed his wife. He lost his young wife during the siege. And not only that, but God specifically came to Ezekiel before he had even called him as a prophet and said, listen, I do not want you to grieve the loss of your wife, but rather the mourning that you feel for her, I want you to use that as impetus and inspiration for the ministry that I am going to call you to and as an illustration of the judgment that I must execute against my people for their sin." How would you like that as your call into ministry? I talk to a lot of people who feel called into ministry. Not one of them has ever said that they feel called into ministry because it's going to be devastating. Ezekiel's call into ministry, you understand, was surrounded by circumstances of devastation and suffering and grief. And God says, you need to use that in your ministry. You need to use that in your ministry. So understand, Ezekiel is not just some critic standing on the sidelines speaking about things that he doesn't know anything about. He's right in the middle of this. And the irony, of course, is that in Hebrew, the name Ezekiel means God will strengthen. God will strengthen. He was called into his prophetic ministry five years after they arrived, somewhere around 592, a few years before the last sacking of Jerusalem. And and, and the book that bears his name is, is a book of judgment on sin and... Uh, several sermons that preach the responsibility of the people for their sin. It's our fault. We're responsible. It, it's a book that's filled with graphic parables and illustrations. Some of the illustrations and parables in here are, 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 are words and metaphors that we would never even begin to think of on our own and and just a couple that come to mind really quick is like when he when he cooks meals over excrement over dung in order to make a point to people or 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 how in chapter 37 the next chapter after this one the vision of the dry bones coming to life in order for him to make his point but it's also a, a book of hope in the midst of all of this exilic misery as well and that hope is fueled by God's great faithfulness even in exile so Ezekiel 36 is filled with a lot of tough words, but there is also hope there. And verses one through seven, which I won't read to you, but I will tell you, they describe the judging wrath of God. They describe the judging wrath of God that comes on his people as a result of their sin, as a result of the, what's known as the situation in Israel, the rebellion against the calling of God. And really that was manifested, Sean spoke a little bit about this last week, that rebellion was manifested in three ways primarily. Number one, it was manifested in idol worship. In both both verses 18 and 25 of Ezekiel 36, God mentions that they worshiped idols and that's a problem. An idol is a false god. An idol is, is some sort of thing that we worship that gets in the way and obstructs our relationship with God. And most of us in the 21st century, we hear this idea of an idol, and we think, "Oh, that was just for ancient people who used to sit around and, and worship statues and, and votives. But you need to understand that we have our idols too. We have our idols too. we have the idols of pleasure and comfort and convenience and and wealth and and status and power and influence and the right cup of coffee and and, and the the perfect shopping experience and the different causes that we We have our idols too and these idols today, these false gods, get in the way of our relationship with God today. We're just like the nation of Israel. We are just like the Jews. And the thing that we need to remember is that idols are false gods and false gods never fail to fail. Eventually they will fail us. The second area that the nation of Israel was rebelling was was that they would make treaties or alignments with other people that God said that they shouldn't do. In other words, they would look around and they would feel insecure or unfulfilled in some way. Have you ever felt insecure or unfulfilled? And they look around and so they don't feel like God is meeting that need and so what they decide to do is align themselves with something horizontally, some people or some nation or some cause or some whatever they would align themselves, make a treaty with those, with those people in order to feel secure or feel fulfilled. And God said, no, 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 no. You're aligned with me. What more do you possibly need to be aligned with? You're aligned with me, the creator God of the universe who is sovereign over everything. Align yourself with me. And they said, no, God, we don't think that alignment is doing enough for us. We need to align ourselves with others and with other things. What are you aligning yourself with that isn't God?" that makes you feel a little bit more secure, but it really isn't going to do the job. And then that third area is just plain old stubbornness. I talked about this two weeks ago uh, in the formation uh, message. Uh, The way the Old Testament describes stubbornness is is it it uses a word that we translate as stiff-necked. Stiff-necked, the idea that you have a stiff neck means you know what's better. You have a better way You know, and so you you do this. You walk away from God's way because you have a better way. You have a stiff neck. Any dog people in here? Anybody like dogs? I like dogs. I have dogs. Really, like two dog people? What kind of you're not even Christians, man? Just you ever walked a dog with a stiff neck? It's frustrating and annoying, right? And they want to go places that you know are going to harm them. They've got this stiff neck and they want to run into traffic or run toward the rattlesnake if you're in the mountain preserves. And they got this stiff neck and you're pulling on the leash, going, No, I know what's better. And, and they're pulling. This is actually the picture of the stiff neck that you're supposed to have, this rebellion, you know? And, and this is going to grow some of you out, but I'm going to do it anyway because no matter how much you hate it, you're always going to remember it, which is always a feather in my cap. So, um, what does a dog usually do when it's got a stiff neck and it's pulling on the leash? Ah, 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 ah. Sounds so delightful and comfortable, doesn't it? And you're like, if you'd just soften up your neck, you wouldn't be choking yourself to death. Why do you have such a stiff neck? And then you realize you're speaking English to a dog and they don't care. You just, it, it, it's just goofy, but this is the picture that's happening here. So as a result of the situation in Israel, idols and false gods, treaties and alignment and just plain stubbornness, in comes the judgment. God allows Babylon to come in and the desolation, the destruction, and the inhabitation of their land by their enemies is what results. But even in that, you look in verse 7 and God promises that he's even going to visit reproach on their enemies eventually. Even though he used them to judge the nation of Judah, the, na- the, the nation of Israel, he's eventually going to go ahead and judge them as well. And then verses 8 through 15 shift to God's faithfulness and a look at the future. And so there we will start to read. Chapter 36, verses 8 through 15. These are verses where God's faithfulness really begins to come into play. He says, But you, O mountains of Israel, that's a poetic way of just referring to the Jews, his people. You shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my my people Israel, for they will soon come home. Now, I want you to understand that when these words were preached by Ezekiel, it was still 50 to 55 years before they would come home. So the vast majority of the people who are hearing these words from Ezekiel never even made it. We need to remember that when we're in exile, God is not obligated to return us to our homeland in any quick time. That he's going to do it on his timing as well. But he says, you will soon come home. His idea of soon and our idea often conflict with each other. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. He says, I'm going to till you and sow. Do you know what it means to be tilled? Literally, it means I'm going to shred you as a people. I'm going to shred you as a person. I'm going to I'm going to tear you down before I can build you back up. I need to tear you down so that we can expose all of this sin and start to get rid of it so that I have my teachable moment with you. And then I'm going to sow you back up. Literally, it means I'm going to reap the harvest, of course. But it means I'm going to build you back up and there's going to be a harvest. So I'm I'm going to till you and I'm going to sow you. And I will multiply people on you. The whole house of Israel, all of it. The city shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. That's Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll look at next week. And I will multiply on you man and beast and they shall, be, uh, they shall multiply and be fruitful. You're, you're, gonna, you're gonna grow again as a people and you're gonna have lots of livestock. There's, there's gonna be a lot of donkeys, I'll promise you that. And I will cause you to be inhabited as, as in your former times and I will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That's why he's doing this, by the way. So that people will know that he is the Lord. I will let people walk on you Even my people Israel and they shall possess you and you shall be their inheritance and you shall no longer bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour people and you bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall no longer devour people and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. And I will not let you hear any more the reproach of the nations and you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord. So you won't be a laughing stock anymore. This is, this is God's statement of faithfulness to his people. But now be careful here because there's a driving force behind his faithfulness to his people. And that force is that he is first and foremost faithful to himself. Verses 16 through 36 that we're going to look at now constitute a key, mas- a key passage in all of Ezekiel that is a concentrated form of the theology that we find in the book of Ezekiel, It's a critical restoration passage, yes, but it's set in the context of exile, so there's still this, this tilling that needs to be done, this, this truth-telling, this, this cultivating, this very hard and challenging message, and, and that's that God's purpose is going to be thwarted no matter what, but it's going to be hard. And the passage contains clear and unequivocal teaching about the holiness, supremacy, exaltedness, and sovereignty of God. Yet it also contains in verses 16 through 21 a clear understanding that you and I as human beings, that that the, that the, the Jews as human beings are responsible for their sin and that sin calls for divine judgment. And the impurity of God's people compelled God to scatter them and to judge them in his wrath against sin. That's what happens. Sin is serious. God takes it very serious and we need to understand that. And that in turn led to derision by their enemies. You see that in verse 20. Scorn against the name of God. That their enemies were actually making fun of God as well and so God needs to restore his people. Why? Not to make his people feel better about themselves, but rather to vindicate his own reputation, to vindicate his holy name. He says, I have concern for my holy name. That's what happens here. So look at verses 16 through 21. The word of the Lord came to me, and here it is. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived on their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. There was one of those graphic, crass illustrations I was talking about. God wants the attention of His people. Sin is serious. You need to understand this before you go back. And oh, by the way, you're not going back quite right away. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries, In accordance with their ways and deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of their land. They're mocking God as they are mocking God's people. So God says in verse 21, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So we're gonna see in verses 22 through 32 that God was therefore compelled to act on behalf of his people, but again, it's him that he is propping up by acting on behalf of his people. He's not acting on behalf of his people because he thinks his people are that great in terms of what they bring to the party. He's acting on behalf of them because he feels compelled to because of what's happened to his name. Remember two weeks ago when I, talked about ex- when I was talking out of Exodus 34? And Exodus 34, that passage was God came to, came to Moses and preached a sermon to Moses. And, and God preaches this sermon to Moses. And what did he preach to Moses? Oh, Moses, you're such a wonderful guy. Moses, you're, you're, I've been watching you, Moses, and you're great. And I need you on my team. And would you consider signing on the dotted line? You're with God. Would you do that for me, Moses? Because you're just awesome. No. God preached a message to Moses that said, Moses, I'm God and I am great. It's about me, Moses. J.I. Packer in a recent essay about about churches, evangelical churches in America, he says one of the problems that we face in churches in in North America today is that there's too much man-centered preaching and not enough God-centered preaching. God reminds us in Ezekiel 37 that it's about Him and His glory and His sovereignty and His majesty. And I know, I I honestly have not run into this too much in my two and a half years at Redemption Church, but in in churches that I preached at regularly prior to coming here, I ran into this quite often. Uh, Some form of this statement, somebody would come up and say, you know, Pastor Frank, I I come to church on, on Sunday morning to hear a message that makes me feel good about myself. And I want you to hear this. That is not the job description of any pastor That is not the job description of any pastor. The job description of a pastor is this, and you can find it in 1 Peter. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into his magnificent light. That's our job. We need to talk about God. We need to exalt God. We need to praise and worship God. We need to prop him up. We need to tell people about him. And so this is a challenge. Now listen to these verses, 22 through 32. Therefore say to the house of Israel, says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Just let that hang on you for a minute. It's not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name, God says, that I'm about to act. Ah. take my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you did and which you have profaned among them and the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes are you getting the theme here are you getting the message here I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And now God gets very tender. And you see that he just can't help himself. His graciousness and his faithfulness and his tenderness and his compassion still come through. In verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. If you are a Christian today, if you are a follower of Christ today, that's exactly what happened to you. God came to you and he removed your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. He gave you a new heart and his spirit fills you up. His Holy Spirit is in you, leading and guiding you and directing you today. That's the gospel right there. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Another word for law. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never... Suffer again the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then verses 31 and 32 are very challenging. Then you'll remember your evil ways. When I show you my grace and mercy, that will cause you to remember the fact that you're sinners. It will cause you to reflect on your sin. It'll cause you to repent of your sin. And then check this out. He says, you'll remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Oh, We're not supposed to loathe ourselves. That hurts my self-esteem. That's that's not right. Verse 32, it's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways. Wow. That's not 21st century build everybody up, everybody wins self-esteem language, is it? That, that kind of bothers us. We need to understand that in the midst of God's graciousness and faithfulness, He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. In the midst of His grace, that true grace, if we have an understanding of true grace, we understand that that causes us to reflect on our sin and repent from our sin, not take license with sin. Again, as a pastor, it's amazing how many people I hear say, you know, it, it, I can, it, grace is wonderful, I can do whatever I want and God's going to forgive me. You have a misunderstanding of what true grace and love is if you're doing that. That's called license. And if you read the little New Testament postcard of Jude towards the back of the New Testament, take you about 10 minutes to read it, you know that he comes down very hard on that attitude towards sin, that licentiousness. He says you don't understand grace if that's your attitude. Grace will cause you to reflect on your sin and and repent of it And, and you'll loathe yourself for your sin. And then verse 32, I'm going to probably get a bunch of emails for this one. Sean Myers and I are in a competition to see who gets the most emails. Anyway, I should win with this one. Here you go. He says you'll be confounded and filled with shame when you realize what you've done. In the proper context, in a godly, biblical context dealing with our sin, I think we often downplay the value of guilt, shame, and embarrassment. We are so bent on eliminating genuine guilt, shame, and embarrassment because we don't want anybody to feel bad and therefore we have people running roughshod over other people. It's one of the big reasons we have injustice in this world today because we don't call injustice what it really is. It's sin and we're responsible for it, you and I. Let me just take us down this road for a couple minutes. This, this whole idea of self-esteem, it's amazing. I've already mentioned it. There's a guy named Roy Bauermeister. He's a, a, a scholar at, at Florida State University. He's a professor of psychology. He has published more than 500 publications. He has authored or co-authored more than 30 books. And one of his specialties is self-esteem. Self-esteem, which I would describe as the repackaging of the sin of pride. If you wanted to argue which is the worst of all the sins, I would argue that it's pride. So would C.S. Lewis. Pride is the chief of all sins. It's the one sin through which all other sin gets manifested through. It's the sin that caused Lucifer to fall from grace and become Satan. It's, it's everybody's besetting sin. Every one of us, our besetting sin is Pride. Self-esteem repackages this awful sin and turns it into a virtue and into something that we must have in order to be fulfilled, in order to be, to be living. And Bauermeister comes along and says, I have this body of research that says that this has been a disaster for human beings. L- listen to this. Listen. It is now understood that one of the main causes of violence and cruelty in children is unrealistically or narcissistically high Self-esteem. Did you hear that? One of the main causes of violence in children is unrealistically high self-esteem. Which, by the way, I think that's redundant. High self-esteem. He says, if we, if we have determined that we need to see ourselves as highly valued and esteemed, and this then comes in conflict with reality, even temporarily, and then he inserts parenthetically, as of course it will frequently do, when we meet the seemingly unfair challenges of real life, our self-esteem is always gonna come in conflict with reality. He says all of us, all of us, but then parenthetically he adds, young men in particular are prone to lashing out violently to defend our wounded pride. He says, we see this in all areas of life. And then he lists politics and education in the marketplace. But then he, again, he, he picks out one area. And he says, we see this in all areas of life, especially in love, manifested in the painful, angry, embittered reactions of the injured party when they not only lose love, but also take a hit to a self-image falsely built up by praise and compliments that had nothing to do with that person's skill, accomplishments, or ability to help others. Wow. I read this first, uh, maybe three weeks ago, four weeks ago. It was right in the wake of, of an awful homicidal tragedy. And, and immediately I put the two pieces together. Anybody else putting this together? Elliot Rogers, University of California, Santa Barbara, went on this shooting spree and murdered seven, eight people. And what the investigators are saying is that the reason he killed people is because he got tired of being rejected by women he was hitting on, and so he wanted to go kill them and the men that they were choosing instead of him. And I know some of you are going, oh, Frank, that's, a, that's, a, that's an illustration that's way overboard. That's, that's an exception to the rule, and he's got some mental issues anyway. I think self-esteem is a really bad mental issue that we have. And so does Bauermeister. He says this has been awful. It's been deleterious, the effect that it's had on on human beings. And he says, listen, you can talk about Elliot Rogers, but he's saying this is manifested on all levels of all life everywhere. Let me give you a couple of examples. When I was um, uh, working on my master's uh, in communication at ASU, I was in this class, 12 or 14 people, and the professor was turning back midterm papers and, and this one young lady got her paper back and she got a C. And I will tell you, I watched as her world caved in on her. She got a C in graduate school on a paper, her world literally fell apart. And then God, knowing that I would need this sermon illustration on June 15th, 2014, allowed me... I had made an appointment with that professor to talk about something else and I got there a little bit early and I was sitting in the waiting room and the professor had left the door to her office open and who was in there talking to her but this girl that had gotten a C on her paper. And I heard the whole conversation. It was a fairly short conversation, but here's how it went. She said, I shouldn't have gotten a C on this paper. I deserve an A. And the professor says, why? And she said, because I'm an A student and I always get A's. That's it. That's it. Wow, good argument. <laughs> so the professor, trying to help her out, says, "Well, can you explain to me in the content of the paper what should have, what merited an A instead of a C?" And she said, "Yes, I'm an A student, and I always get A's. You need to give me an A." That was it. And I'm sitting there going, "I don't even... Well, anyway." But that's what's happened. That's what's happened. It's just amazing to me. Kids are getting 7.0s on a 4.0 grade point average. I don't even know how that happens anymore, you know? We don't want them to feel bad, you know? Here you go. This is gonna be tough, but it's true. My wife has been a volleyball coach for 25 years. Good one, too. I have to build up her self-esteem. Anyway, so (laughs) college and club. I mean, I'm sorry, high school and club volleyball. And she loves it, and it's an opportunity for ministry, and she loves volleyball, and she loves working with these these girls, but she says if she could take out one element, it's this. She says the vast majority of the parents, 80 90%, they all believe that their daughter, number one, is going to play for Penn State University and number two is going to cure cancer someday. Now, you have 12 girls on a volleyball team where six can only play at a time, and you have a bunch of parents who think that their kid is going to play for Penn State and, and cure cancer. That's a recipe for disaster, right? Nobody is ever happy with that. But it's all based on this self-esteem. And it's funny because Jackie says, club volleyball is actually the first place where most young women that she knows encounter for the first time that conflict between reality and this unrealistic self-image that they have. Oh, there's other people that might be better than me. There's other people that might want to try to beat me. Some of the girls come and play for a couple weeks and they can't take it. They just leave. They can't take it. You see, God comes along and in the midst of our pride, he tells us the truth. Because God is faithful to us. His faithfulness involves telling us the truth. And so often we talk about God's faithfulness and we. We paint God's faithfulness with this idea that it's all cupcakes and muffins and and frolicking in meadows like on, on thin air and all this stuff and it's just wonderful. You need to understand that God's faithfulness doesn't always tickle. Sometimes he comes right at us and he says, here's the issue and you're the issue. I'm the issue. God's faithfulness has to have this component and... We need to remember that his faithfulness is first and foremost to who he is. And then it's out of that faithfulness to himself comes his faithfulness to us and because he's the sovereign creator of the universe and he has this faith for himself and for us, that's why you and I can have faith in him and trust him. That's why. It's not a rhetorical argument. It's who he is. We can have faith in him because he's the only one who has the ability to say, I can have faith in myself. And I need to have that faith in myself. So then, the restoration of the land of Israel silences the nations, and compels them to recognize the one true God. You see that in the last four verses. Thus says the Lord God: On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being desolate, uh, instead of instead of the desolation that it was that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this is the land that was desolate and it has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste has, uh, and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. We'll look at that in Ezra and Nehemiah next week. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. That's God's faithfulness. Now, just give me two more minutes, three more minutes. Mark Labberton, who's the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, and by the way, he's written a couple of books. This book here, I read this four or five years ago, one of the most important books I've ever read, The Dangerous Act of Worship, Living God's Call to Justice. For eight or 10 years now, he has been saying this with great conviction. We are no longer in the promised land in America American Christianity is no longer the reigning dominant worldview or paradigm. Christendom is dead. We are in exile. The problem is is that most Christians in American Christian churches are still behaving like we're in the promised land and they don't get it. They don't understand that we are in exile. Fact is, we're now on the fringes. We don't have the power or the influence that we ever had or that we ever thought we had. And by the way, it's not just Labyrinthine who says this. Keller says this. Driscoll says this. It's been documented throughout. And, and, and those that whine about this, I mean, I hear people whining about this. Well, I just remember when, you know, it's a church. Everybody knew that church was the center. And then the Christians and this and that. We were a Christianate and all that. And people are whining about it. Those people who whine, you guys need to remember that this is exactly what Scripture said was going to happen. We're going to be on the fringes. We're going to be in exile Until he comes again. We are more in Babylon than we are in Jerusalem today. But let me, having said that, let me point this out. Even though we have this exile analysis today in in American evangelical Christianity, let's please not take this too far. Let's not take it too far. Let's remember that in our exile, we still have privileges and comforts unlike anything anyone before us could have ever dreamed of. Let's not... Walk around lamenting our terrible lot in life and how God has done this to us. God has been so gracious and so faithful to us, even in the midst of our exile. I I stand here in a, well, until about 15 minutes ago, a a nice air-conditioned sanctuary with really great music that's amplified and my voice is amplified so I don't lose my voice and you can hear everything. You're sitting on cushioned seats and guess what? I don't feel threatened that somebody's going to come in here and kill me because I'm preaching the gospel. I also don't feel marginalized or oppressed. At least most of the time I don't feel that way. Do you understand our exile is still pretty decent Still pretty good. God has been so faithful. It's so much harder to be a Christian today than it was 50 years ago. Is it harder? I don't really know. I wasn't a Christian 50 or 60 years ago. I don't know. But this I can say for sure. I think I can say this with authority. I think it's more interesting and exciting to be a Christian today than it was 50 or 60 years ago. It's way more interesting and exciting today. Do any of you ever play tic tac toe anymore? other than when you're showing a 4-year-old how to play do any of you is that your thing you're a tic-tac-toe player Are, any of you just like uh, get the sermon over with we got a big tic-tac-toe tournament at our tournament at our house this afternoon we're going to have fun we're going to have doritos and tic-tac-toe man hurry up let's go 4 hours of tic-tac-toe why don't you play tic-tac-toe anymore huh why Because it's dull. It's boring. Nothing challenging ever happens. Nothing exciting ever happens. Nothing thought-provoking ever happens in the middle of tic-tac-toe. Here you go. Being a Christian 60 years ago in America, I think it was like tic-tac-toe. It may have been easier, but there was nothing really of any interest going on. Nobody was challenged. Nobody was put out of their comfort zone. We live in exciting times and we are called to live in these times just as God called the, Isra- the, the nation of Israel and Judah to live in those exciting times and to be a blessing to the city even in the midst of exile, Jeremiah 29 tells us. We are living in exciting and challenging and thought-provoking times and we need to be on our game and it's really not even our game, it's the game of the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ in us. That's who we have our faith in because he is faithful to us even in the midst of of exile let me close by just reading to you this little passage out of first peter chapter 3 that reminds us of what we are going to be dealing with here and that it's okay and that we have a ministry in the midst of this first peter 3 13 through 18 now who is here to harm you if you're zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honored Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do that defense with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once. sins that's the gospel that's the good news that we have and we're living in the midst of that and we're living in exile but god does his best work in exile so let's lean into that lean into his faith